0: Lord Jesus, it is all about you. And what a great reminder that song is. We may come on a Sunday morning with certain expectations. We may come with certain hopes. We may come with certain desires. But ultimately, we need to come recognizing that we are here because of you. We're here because of your invitation. We, we're answering that this morning. And anything that is said and done really should be all about Jesus. God, help that be the case this morning. We pray this in the blood of Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to go a little unscripted for a bit. I don't know if God's working on me from being in a minor prophet last week, uh, if he's working on me from the time at the uh, men's retreat, or if he's working on me from the time in song. I mean, these, the stuff hit home to me this morning. Um, I think so often I want to see God as you know, yay, happy, full of grace. And we sang a song, you know, visit this place full of mercy and grace. And and I wonder how often, if God truly did visit this place, not saying that He isn't, not saying that He hasn't, but if God truly did, would would I be in the same mental condition? Would I be in the same? A heart place. I mean, the song we did say, I mean, it saying as we lift up our our hands, will you visit this place? And then we sang a lot of words like, holy, 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 a lot of times. And hallelujah, a lot of times. And I know there's some people, I'm gonna say in any church, I won't specifically say in here, that don't like repetition of something over and over and over, but I couldn't help but wonder Man, if God visited this place, would we have anything else to say? Could there be anything else we could say besides hallelujah, holy, holy, holy? God's messing with me this morning. I mean, I I was prepping. I prepped last night. We came back, Tim and I and Seth from the men's retreat was prepping last night. No was good this morning I was prepping and I seriously that, caught my breath and I'm like "Ah, don't do this to me this morning Lord don't convict me and then Tim you have to go and pick all these songs what if God visited this place holy 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 most of you have been alive longer than 30 years yes Okay, so um, again, still going unscripted, lots have changed in the last 30 years. Name something. What what has changed? The internet. Yeah, I sent a text to a friend this past week that said, hey, I, I saw a picture of you on something called the World Wide Web. He got a kick out of it. The internet has changed. It wasn't here 30 years ago, it is now. Okay, what else has changed? Esri. Computers, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, they used to just have a little green, like green letters that flash. Scotty knows that, yeah. Uh, what else? Cell phones. Yeah, and I remember when I saw my very first cell phone, it was in the hands of a football player, an NFL football player, Rahib Ishmael. I thought, ooh, that guy's cool. <laughs> now He also had a car with headlights on the, win- on the, uh, on the what do you call those things? With windshield wipers on the headlights. There we go. That's why I don't go unscripted, because I can't talk. Anyways, cell phones. Yes, what else? Cars. They've changed, definitely. They were cooler 30 years ago. (laughs) Uh, How what? Like the speed of life affects stuff? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah? Interaction. Human interaction. That has changed a lot. 30 years ago, we actually, when we were talking about like face stuff, it wasn't Facebook, it was face to face. Yep. When together at the table, talking together instead of each other our own Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Ronnie? Okay, certain animals not getting along with other people. Ronnie's learning about 30 years ago in his textbooks. <laughs> Donovan? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a lot has changed. A lot has changed. Susie? Yeah. Yeah, our list of friends. Sure. For, for some generations, they're saying goodbye, and for others, they're collecting more and more. I have like, I don't know, 560 some friends on Facebook. I think I only know like three of them. Ronnie's one of them. The year was 625 A.D. God's people were struggling with pride, with leadership issues, with the worship of things other than God. Those types of sins. So God sent his prophets. He talked to them, and what happens next? Surely they listened, right? Surely they, they heard God's word, they repented, they, they learned, and they changed. And surely that change lasts generations and generations to come and still affects the people of God today, right? 625 A.D. The year is 2015 A.D. That was 625 B.C. Now it's 2015. God's people are struggling with pride. Leadership issues. Worship of things other than God. God has sent his prophets. He sent his word. He sent his son. Surely things have changed. Do we still struggle with the same sins that they did that many years ago? You've heard the saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Unfortunately, that is true about the sins people commit. The sins against humanity, the sins against their creator. Our times may change, our technology may change, our understandings of ourselves and our world around us may change, but so often our sins stay the same. That's the unfortunate thing. Fortunately, we serve a God that also does not change. He stays the same. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to do a short series, two weeks, this week and next week, called God's Unchanging a little study in the prophet Zephaniah, and we're going to look at a few of the areas he does not change. Now, uh, a little further out than two weeks, uh, the next six months or so, uh, we're going to be doing a study in the minor prophets. Pastor Ron kicked this off last week. He did a great job tackling Nahum in one day, and if I could copy something from him, I would say the same thing. Oh, I don't know why these texts were assigned to me today. I listened to Ron's sermon on Monday when I was running. I love it. I love his stuff. But I struggle just as much as he does as we wrestle with the minor prophets. So over the next, uh, let's see, today and up through the end of June, we're going to be spending time in Zephaniah, Obadiah, Zechariah, Habakkuk, and Haggai. Pastor Ron will be here on June 7th for uh, a sermon in there. And then come the end of June, he's going to jump in and take over for three months while my family and I go on sabbatical. This is the time where we will head down to Denver for some more training, some equipping, and from there we'll go and we'll have some intentional rest and refreshment so that when we come back, uh, we will be fully prepared to continue leading God's group of people for another long stretch of time. So, even though over the next seven ish months or so, six ish months or so, there may seem to be some changes, you know, the person talking up front and who you're getting what information from and, and all those good things, I can assure you that you'll be in very good hands. I mean, Pastor Ron's hands, uh, the good and, and, uh, and competent hands of our church leadership, and most importantly, the hands of a God who does not change. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's unchanging. I want to ask his blessing again on our time in the Word before we start. I think it's key. Lord God, we're about to open one of your prophets, one of the people that you spoke to in our time and in our place, in in humanity's time and place. And Lord, the message you gave him was real and for that time and for the people around that time, but it was also real and for, for us. So Lord, I ask that you would help us to hear what you want to say. Help us to open our ears and our eyes to hear and see. Yeah, help us, Lord, in Jesus name. Amen. Zephaniah. Anybody know anything about him? <laughs> Me neither. And I and I studied him in seminary. Well, you know something, Ezra, huh? He was a prophet. Fantastic. Zephaniah was a prophet and most people say Zephaniah was is the most least. Is the least known prophet of all the minor prophets. His predictions include immediate judgment of God's people, which took place to God's people by Babylon in 605 to 586. And he also prophesies about the ultimate judgment at the end of the age, the day of the Lord. I encourage you guys to read these three short chapters this week, and you'll see several places where he talks about the day or the day of the Lord. Now, you can see from up on the screen... Okay, so I can't even see from up on the screen. That is tiny. Uh, a little bit, you know, you can just remember last week how Ron said all these, these minor prophets were there. And he did a great job explaining all of it. On the very top right, you see Nahum, which Ron talked about. Uh, God was talking to the people of God about Nineveh. Uh, that was dealing with the northern kingdom, which was uh, overtaken by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Along the bottom, you see Judah which is the two remaining tribes, Benjamin and Judah. They're they're just called Judah because Judah was so much bigger. And you see the prophets that got to speak to Judah. You see Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Obadiah. We are on Zephaniah today, who prophesied about 20 to 25 years after God spoke to his people through Nahum. Ultimately, what God is doing through the prophet Zephaniah is calling his people to repent of its sins or face the wrath of God. He had called the northern tribes to do the same, but they didn't listen. They faced the wrath of God through the Assyrians, and the southern tribes are in great danger of also facing the wrath of God if they did not repent. Now, a few basic historical facts. Most people date Zephaniah right around 625 B.C., uh, they do that because he talks about prophesying in the days of King Josiah. Now, Josiah, for those who know, was one of Judah's better kings. He came to, to kingship at age eight, and he was known for tremendous reforms, especially reforms concerning idolatry. So that's a little background. Let's jump right in. Zephaniah 1, verse 1. Says the Lord gave this message to Zephaniah when Josiah, son of Ammon, was king of Judah. Zephaniah was the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. Now, right off the bat, as uh, Pastor Ron called it last week, this subscript we get to see two reasons why the people of Judah and the, and, uh, and us should listen to this prophet. Zephaniah is the only prophet that traces his lineage back to the fourth generation. Now, many there's there's much speculation about why he does that, but the best and most intriguing idea is that he traces it back to King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was one of Judah's most revered and most godly rulers, so if he's saying, look, I am tied to that guy, this is why you should listen to me, not only should the people of Judah back then listen, but we too should listen. Now, the second reason we should listen to him is the way this book starts. The Lord gave this message to Zephaniah, or the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. Now, no matter what changes in culture, people, practices, in the people of Judah or in our time today, a message that comes from God needs to be listened to. Somebody can say amen. A message that comes to God needs to be listened to. Times may change, but God doesn't, and we're looking at God's unchanging dot, dot, dot. Right out of the gate, the prophet Zephaniah comes out swinging. He says, hey, Judah, God does not change. And therefore, listen to God's unchanging demand for worship. Listen to God's unchanging demand for worship of himself. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. God says, I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist. And destroy every last trace of their Baal worship. I will put an end to all the idolatrous priests, so that even the memory of them will disappear. For they go up to their roofs and bow down to the sun, the moon, and the stars. They claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Molech too. And I will destroy those who used to worship me, but no longer do. They no longer ask for the Lord's guidance or seek my blessings." As we know from history, the people of Judah were having some problems worshiping gods other than Yahweh with idolatry. And this is not new to the people. I mean, since God claimed to the people, since he brought them out of Egypt, since he set them free from slavery, pretty much from day one, they had been struggling with worshiping other gods. Moses had gone up to the mountain to get the first set of Ten Commandments, and when he came down, what had happened? People built the golden calf. And they were worshiping it. They were saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. I mean, no sooner had the Ten Commandments even been scribbled by the finger of God than the people were breaking the first two of the Ten Commandments. That was at the very beginning of their story with God. Now, you you look at all of it in and out of their their story, and you're going to see that these people continue to struggle worshiping other gods. The psalmist says this in Psalm 106. Verses 34 to 39. Let's see if I can get to it. Turn, turn around. Thank you. The psalmist says this in Psalm 106, 34 to 39 Israel failed to destroy the nations in the land as the Lord had commanded them. Instead, they mingled among the pagans and adopted their evil customs. They worshipped their idols, which led to their downfall. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood and the blood of their sons and daughters by sacrificing them to the idols of Canaan. They polluted the land with murder. They defiled themselves by their evil deeds, and their love of idols was adultery in the Lord's sight. This is David writing. Which, in that graph we saw earlier, is even before the northern and southern tribes split. So the nation of Israel was already struggling with idolatry. And you want to see how it was in the time of Judah that we're looking at today? Read 2 Kings 22 and 23. So what did this worship of other gods besides Yahweh look like for the people of Judah in 625 B.C.? We're going to spend most of our time in these three verses in Zephaniah. Chapter 1, verse 4, the first thing that they were worshiping other than Yahweh was Baal. Verse 4 says, I'll crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist, destroying every last trace of their Baal worship. I'll put an end to the idolatrous priests so that even the memory of them will disappear. Baal worship. This had been a stumbling block for the nation of Israel throughout its history, and supposedly this Canaanite deity called Baal brought fertility to crops and families. According to one commentator, Baal worship involved the worst forms of sexual depravity, religious prostitution. Remember, God doesn't change. He hated Baal worship when he first claimed Israel, and he continued to hate it. And that's why in the first few breaths of Zephaniah's prophecy, God is vowing to eradicate this worship. God's got an, undemanding, an unchanging demand for worship, and he doesn't like these ideas of Baal worship. Now, it's a good thing that today we don't struggle with worshiping sex. Unless we've come totally oblivious to it, we can't watch TV for more than 30 minutes without seeing some sort of inappropriate picture or sexual innuendo or subtle image that would draw our minds to sex. Can you drive even one mile in Spokane without seeing a billboard or, or something that's directed towards the human body in a way that may not be pleasing to God? You can't. I mean, the pornography business makes more money in one year than all of professional baseball, football, and basketball combined. If this is not a culture that worships the God of sex, then I'm not sure what is. 625 B.C. to 2015 A.D., times change, but the sins that the cultures commit hasn't. God is unchanging and will not tolerate Worship of things other than himself. Things we could call Baal worship today. Now you move on to verse 5 and you see that Baal worship wasn't the only blatant worship in Zephaniah. Verse 5 begins by talking about the worship of heavenly bodies in the skies. It says, For they go up to their roofs and they bow down to the sun, the moon, and the stars. You talk about how the more things change, the more they stay the same. Had God not warned the people of Israel about this early on? Even before He gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments? Listen to what God told Moses in Deuteronomy 4, verse 15 and following. He said, But be very careful. You did not see the Lord's form on the day He spoke to you from the heart of the fire at Mount Sinai. So do not corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form, whether of man or woman. An animal on the ground, a bird in the sky, a small animal that scurries along the ground, or a fish in the deepest seas. Verse 19, And when you look up into the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the forces of heaven, don't be seduced into worshiping them. The Lord your God gave them to all peoples of the earth. Question. In the times of Moses, did the stars and moon and Sun really deserve people's worship? In the times of Zephaniah, did the sun, the moon, the stars really deserve people's worship? No. In the times of today do the sun, the stars, the moon still deserve people's worship? No. According to astrologysunsignpredictions.com. That's a mouthful. Roughly 30% of the population believes in astrology. So they figure that about 20% check their horoscope on a regular basis, either daily or weekly. 20%, okay? So if that 20% is 20% of people in the world, you figure that is about 1.4 billion people globally. You figure about a third of people in the world claim Christ. okay. So you do the math, and you figure that that's about 400 million people Followers of Christ that check their horoscope daily, that believe that that plays a role in how things turn out. 400 million, that's a lot of people claiming to follow Christ, who to some degree still worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. If God doesn't change, how do you think he feels about that? Maybe the same way he felt when he had Amos talk. Amos said, it's the Lord who created the stars, the Pleiades and the Orion. He turns darkness into morning and day into night. The Lord is his name. And he has got an undemanding, an unchanging demand of worship of himself, not the stars. Now, one more thing that worship other than Yahweh looked like for the people in Zephaniah's day. See, end of verse 5. Verse 5 says they go up on their roofs, they bow down to the sun, the moon, the stars. They claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Molech too. Molech. That was the pagan deity of the Ammonites. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 11. The most detestable practice imaginable. Child sacrifice was associated with the worship of this God. Listen to how God feels about The practice of worshiping Molech. Deuteronomy 20. The Lord said to Moses, Give the people of Israel these instructions which apply both to native Israelites and to the foreigners living in Israel. If any of them offer their children as a sacrifice to Molech, they must be put to death. The people of the community must stone them to death. I myself will turn against them and cut them off from the community because they have defiled my sanctuary and brought shame on my holy name by offering their children to Molech. And if the people of the community ignore those who offer their children to Molech and refuse to execute them, I myself will turn against them and their families and will cut them off from the community. This will happen to all who commit spiritual prostitution by worshiping Molech. Any doubt about how God feels about that Ammonite deity? He's not a big fan. It's a good thing child sacrifice doesn't still happen today, right? I mean, at least in our country, if if it happens, the parents are going to get thrown in jail. But maybe other forms of child sacrifice happen. I was talking to a uh, a ministry leader in Spokane late last week, and he was telling me about a program called Watch Dogs. It's a program that's designated to get fatherless sons in a relationship with men in the community. And he was telling me about a time a guy, a dad, came to a school and sat and ate lunch with his son, and there was a group of four kids, and one of the kids looked at the dad and he says, "Are, are you his real dad? I mean, are, are are you like the guy who, I mean, from his dad from birth? Are, are you the kid was obviously struggling as to how to even phrase the question? So when the dad looks at this young man and says, Yes, I am his dad, the young man that asked the question gasped and said, I've never met a real dad. Are we sacrificing our sons? Are we sacrificing our kids? During a sports season when the TV is on and they're pushed to the background or when a a certain sitcom comes or or when a certain extracurricular activity happens, are we pushing our kids to the back and sacrificing them? We may not kill our kids like sacrificing to Molech, but how often do we sacrifice them so we can have our time, our space, our corners of our lives? If God has given us children, do not sacrifice them because God hates this. God told the people of Judah, I do not change. I demand your worship. All of it. Now all of this is in these four verses of blatant forms of worship that Judah was committing against God. If you read the rest of Zephaniah, you're going to see some less blatant forms of worship. Worship of pride, which puts ourselves before God. Uh, Worship of of bad leadership, which means we think we can lead better than God can lead us. Worship of things like money. I'm not going to go into all the details of these less blatant things just due to time, but I will say that God does have an unchanging demand for worship, whether it's our blatant worship or our subtle worship. And this is what he says, verse 6, I will destroy those who used to worship me, but no longer do. They no longer ask for the Lord's guidance or seek my blessing. God is speaking to the people of God. Last week, we, we could swallow it because God was speaking to Nahum about the people of Nineveh and the punishment He was going to give to the people of Nineveh. God's speaking to the people of God now. He's saying, I will destroy those who used to worship me but no longer do. These are aspects of God we don't like to wrestle with. These are parts of God we don't like to think about his wrath, his punishment, his anger. But here it is. Here it is. God will punish even his own people who do not follow through on seeking him, on worshiping him fully. And that punishment is not fun to listen to. I mean, just listen. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7 and following. Stand in silence, Zephaniah says, in the presence of the sovereign Lord, for the awesome day of the Lord's judgment is near. Remember, he's talking to God's people. The Lord has prepared his people for a great slaughter and has chosen their executioners. On that day of judgment, says the Lord, I will punish the leaders and princes of Judah and all those following pagan customs. Yes, I will punish those who participate in pagan worship ceremonies and those who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. On that day, says the Lord, a cry of alarm will come from the fish gate and echo throughout the new quarter of the great city and the great crash will sound from the hills. Wail in sorrow all you who live in the market area for all the merchants and traders will be destroyed. Verse 12, I will search. God will search with lanterns in Jerusalem's darkest corners to punish those who sit complacent in their sins. They think the Lord will do nothing to them, either good or bad. So their property will be plundered. Their homes will be ransacked. They will build new homes but never live in them. They will plant vineyards but never drink wine from them. That terrible day of the Lord is near. Swiftly it comes. A day of bitter tears a day when even strong men will cry out. Verse 15, it will be a day when the Lord's anger is poured out, a day of terrible distress and anguish, a day of ruin and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day when trumpet calls and battle cries, down go the walled cities, down go the strongest battlements. Because you have sinned against the Lord, God says, I will make you grope around like the blind. Your blood will be poured into the dust and your bodies will lie rotting on the ground. Your silver and gold will not save you on that day of the Lord's anger, for the whole land will be devoured by his fire of jealousy. He will make a terrifying end of all the people of the earth. You like the sounds of that? I mean, maybe this is why I'm wrestling this morning. We, We talk about inviting God into our presence. What if this is the God that showed up? He's talking to the people of God, searching with lanterns so that no one and no thing will be missed. Bitter tears, cries of distress and anguish, ruin, desolation, darkness, our blood in the streets, Hearing this makes me think, why would I want to worship a God like that? But as soon as I say that, I think back to verse 6 when it says, I will destroy those who used to worship me but no longer do. So what should we do? If we don't like reading about a God who punishes even his own people who don't worship him fully, I'll be the first to admit there's days I don't worship God fully. This terrifies me. So what do we do? I think a first step, just being willing to wrestle with a prophet like Zephaniah is a good thing. Being able to recognize how serious God is about something and acknowledging that he will do something recognizing how serious God is about this. Now, I'm not sure if you caught this as we were reading the rest of chapter 1, but one of the things that God gets so riled up about is people's complacency about Him. Whether or not He will do something, His wrath towards sin, we see this twice. Once in verse 12, God says, I'll search with lanterns in Jerusalem's darkest corners to punish those who sit complacent in their sins. They think the Lord will do nothing them, either good or bad. God wants us to hear about and know His wrath and do something about it. The second time He says something is in chapter 3 when He's talking about the city of Jerusalem. He says, No one can tell it anything, it refuses all correction, it does not trust the Lord or draw near to its God. So, to answer the question, what should we do? I think the first thing is to recognize how serious God is about sin, even today. Recognize and do not be complacent. The second step is to repent. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. The prophet tells the people, Gather together. Yes, gather together, you shameless nation. Gather before judgment begins, before your time to repent is blown away like chaff. Act now before the fiery furnace of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins. Seek the Lord, all who are humble and follow His commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Perhaps even yet the Lord will protect you, protect you from His anger on that day of destruction. A part of that repentance could be a literal and figurative posture before God. Verse 7 in chapter 1 says, Stand in silence in the presence of the sovereign Lord. You're standing in silence. You're realizing that you're in the wrong and that God has every right to pour out what he says he will. And yet the prophet says, Recognize your sin." Turn from it. Repent. Humble yourself. Seek Him. And if you do, there is still hope. Perhaps even yet, the Lord will protect you. If we turn back to Him, if we seek Him, there is hope He will protect us on that day of the Lord. And we know this because if you fast forward the story of God about 650 years from when Zephaniah wrote this prophecy, you get to see a God that takes steps towards that protection. Promises that we will receive that protection from destruction. We get to see a cross and Christ hanging on it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote the church in Colossians. He said, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God, you who were his enemies, separated by him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now God has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence. You are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. These are the verses I typically cling to. And that's why I think I haven't feared the wrath of God quite as much because I know that Christ paid the price on the cross. But listen to verse 22. You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. You must continue. Yes, Christ paid the price. Accepting him assures us that we will be protected from God's judgment, but God's still going to judge. And this isn't always an easy message to hear. In fact, there's a lot of debate. Will God judge Christians? Will God not judge Christians? Is he going to use the standards in the Old Testament? Is he going to use the New Testament? What was Jesus always saying? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. In John 9, 39, Jesus says this, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Now I realize Jesus also in this same gospel said, I did not come to judge. So that's where there's this rub of, is Jesus going to judge us? Is he not going to judge us? Bottom line, what we're seeing, if we truly hold to the authority of Scripture, both the Old Testament and New Testament, is there is a God who says, I will judge. You need to humble yourselves. Turn to him. Repent. Today's minor prophet, Zephaniah, speaks very pointedly towards God's people. That's us. Through the prophet, God shows his undemanding, excuse me, his unchanging demand for worship. He shows an unchanging demand for repentance. We are God's people. Have times and cultures changed from 625 BC to 2015 AD? Yes, they have. Do we still struggle worshiping only God? I know I do at times. God has an unchanging demand for worship. So what will we do with it? I don't know the answer to that. I think he's given us some ideas. Repent. Turn. Recognize. But what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? Maybe today all I can ask is that you search your heart. You ask God to search your heart for areas of sin that you may have become complacent in and then turn, and then repent. Because as the prophet says, perhaps even yet, the Lord will protect you. Let's pray. God, you know I have struggled with this, uh, this text this week. You know, <laughs> you have been pushing me even today and though I would much rather camp out on the verses in the New Testament to talk about Christ, Christ making me pure and holy and standing before God uh, with you viewing me through the lens of Christ. And I know there's truth in that. I still somehow have to wrestle, Lord, with what you say in the Old Testament to your people through your prophets. God forgive me for complacent sins that I have committed. Bring those to mind. Push me to change. And then keep walking with me as more than likely I'll fail again. Do the same for this people of God that meets here. Convict them. Remind them of how seriously you take sin. Remind them of Christ on the cross. And I thank you that even in the hard passages Really what you're doing is showing us your heart.